HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. We on? Yeah. Wow. We didn't have any song. Uh, Joe, what's up? Uh, trying out a new song, and uh, maybe that one won't work. I, I think it's fine. It's just, you know, I didn't. I thought that was part of the whole, you know, we're Heritage Radio Network. That's the thing. It's like you need a break between the Heritage Radio Network and the cooking issues. Am I right? Yes. Am I right? Sure. So let's start this fresh, people. Hello, and welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live every Tuesday from 12 to 1245 on the Heritage Radio Network. Broadcasting in a container in the back of, uh, what is it? Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Live, as always, with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez and uh, with Joe in the engineering booth. No Jack today, huh? No, Jack's feeling a little sick. Yeah? What kind of sick? I'm not exactly sure. It's, uh, it's some sort of flu type. Uh-huh. Is it, is it the kind of flu you can track from drinking all night? Well. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. What Jack tweet in or Jack, Jack is a very responsible man. Uh, at least about that, so I'm sure that's not it. Anyway, call your questions live to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Uh, I thought, actually, uh, Nastasha was going to be late because she had to run around like an nincompoop today because we have an event uh, We have an event later this afternoon. What is the event we're doing, anyway? It's for the uh, American New Product stuff for Martha Stewart. American New Product stuff? What's, what's that? New products that Martha Stewart likes. That are, happen to be American? Yeah. And uh, we're, we're helping out, or are we one of those products that she likes? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Apparently, we're supposed to dress in uh, caterers' uniforms. Is that correct? All black. All black? Mm-hmm. So all, the only requirement is all black. Mm-hmm. So sequins that are all black? It's fine. So if anyone out there knows a source in Manhattan, lower Manhattan preferably, for you know not too svelte uh, male sequined unitards, please tweet them in so that I can go purchase my... Sequent unitard 
uh, you know, Booker and Dax became recently uh, obsessed with the word unitard. And for that, they were way ahead of me. I didn't become obsessed with unitards and the word unitard until possibly college. Right? <clears throat> when, I was, when I first started in bands, one of my dreams was to have, we were in a band called Jurassic Yellow Plastic, was to have a, a yellow sequined unitard and a velvet, uh, a velvet coat with lapels that uh, were about uh, a, you know, a foot and a half taller than my head that went up. I was big on Bootsy Collins and that kind of thing. Anyways, on to today's question. So, Nastasha, I realized that last week uh, I started answering a question, and as is normal for someone like me, totally went completely off base and never a- actually answered their question. So uh, I apologize to Tom Fisher. Uh, Tom Fisher asked, uh, <clears throat> recent- this is not recently anymore because it's two weeks two weeks, whatever. I recently tried PolyScience's recipe for low-temperature ribs, and while the flavor was amazing, my guests were a little freaked out by the unrendered fat. Is there any way to do a combination of high and low-temperature cooking to get the best of both worlds? Now, I answered the second question that he had, which was about CVAS, but I never answered this. It's kind of an important question when it comes to low-temperature cooking. The answer is no. You cannot get the best of, uh, well, you can't get the best of both worlds in that way. Low-temperature cooking uh, never renders the fat or the collagen out of uh, the out of the meats, and so <clears throat> there's positives and negatives to this. One, the meats don't get as much gelatin and all sorts of broken down, uh, you know, collagen, which is gelatin, uh, throughout the throughout the piece of meat in a low temperature cooked uh, item because the stuff it it turns tender, but it stays in place and. So if you have a portion of something that you're in a traditional braise might get a little moistened by that, by that, that rendered stuff coming out, it's not going to happen in a low temperature. On the other hand, uh, the, the benefit of uh, it not rendering out – well, the other benefit of it not rendering out is as your guests found out, they can be a little bit freaked out by what they think are big chunks of fat, some of which are big chunks of fat, but also big uh, chunks of soft but unrendered connective tissue. But the benefits are that uh, unlike a regular traditional braise, you can take well, – and only with short – there's a lot of bones. There's, you know, it's t- much harder. But you can do a lot of fabrication work on low-temperature cooked stuff. So you can get very uh, you know, nicely sliced pieces of low-temperature cooked things like ribs that are very tender that you can never do if you were doing a traditional uh, cooking technique because they would just shred into, into pieces, right? So, uh, so the answer is no. Uh, but you, 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 know, you can't kind of get the best of both worlds because if you rendered that out, you'd be cooking it to such an extent that you might have just done low-temperature uh, – I mean, you might as well just done traditional cooking from the beginning. There's no reason to do the low temperature step. So I, what I would say is, is that use each technique for its own um, for its own best purpose. So low temperature ribs, great for doing uh, small portions that are. Um, Sliced very nicely and sauced and served as part of plated dish components, right? But if you want rendered out, you know, stick to your ribs, ribs like you know, you know, grandma style, yeah, you know, which I love, uh, then you know, go go traditional, right? Nastasha actually usually I think prefers the traditional one on that, right? Yes. Although I don't think they're, I really honestly, and I've said this a billion times, and I'll probably say it, you know, forever. There's no better or worse. It's not better or worse. It's you know, can you achieve the result that you want to achieve? So anyway, Tom, sorry about that. Another thing I think I don't think I mentioned uh, last week uh, that we had a question about cutting boards, and I talked about cutting boards. I'm just curious out there if anyone out there has tried these weird multi-layer cutting boards that are coming out of Asia now where it's it's like literally just stacked sheets of thin cutting boards that are semi-laminated into one thick board. And then when the top gets dirty, instead of cleaning it, you shove a knife into it and peel the entire top layer of the board off. You ever seen this, Nastasha? No, that's cool. 
It's cool, but it's weird. It makes a real. You would hate it. You know why? It makes a something wrong with you noise when the when the uh, when the layers are separating. It's like <laughs> and Nastasha hates that because it makes her think of some sort of disease peeling off. I mean, I've made that kind of noise <laughs> in the kitchen before, not peeling a disease off, right? <laughs> yeah. Not not for that reason, but uh, but and you hate that kind of noise, right? I hate your breathing. So. <laughs> See, now that's classic Nastasha. Now, for those of you out there who say, uh, Nastasha, she give it to me like I give it to her. See, that's the only time on the air she's ever actually said something like she would normally say to me in, uh, you know, in, in the real world. Just so you guys get a, get a picture of, of uh, what's going on. <clears throat> okay, very nice. Uh, okay, uh, Alvin Schultz uh, tweeted in with a couple different questions. One was, have we ever tried the technique of cryoshocking? So cryoshocking is, a, is a, something that was uh, pioneered or I should say uh, advocated by, I mean, I don't know who actually came up with it, uh, shucking oysters by um, putting the oyster into liquid nitrogen for a brief period of time that kills slash it messes up the musculature of the oyster such that when they, uh, when they warm up a little bit so they're not frozen, you can get a knife in there and you don't have to worry about popping the belly and you don't have to worry about getting little bits of shell into your oyster. Cryoshucking. Now, I have to admit, uh, you know, Chris, uh, Chris Young and uh, you know, Nathan and Maxime and those guys, by the way, you know, none of that team together anymore. The whole team split up. The whole original modernist, like all three of those guys, they're all gone their own separate ways at this point. End, end of that era, beginning of a new era. Uh, so the uh, <coughs> cryoshucking, uh, I've never had much luck with it. They are big advocates of it. I've spoken to Nathan about it and I've spoken to Chris Young about it. I forget exactly how many seconds you put it in. The idea is not to freeze the oyster all the way through, just to uh, shock the bejesus out of it so that, and I guess kill it, but so that it, you know, you can, um, so that it relaxes enough for you to get your knife in without having to put too much force in it. Because when you're putting the force in it that you get the, um, that you get the problems of, of chipping shell and all that. Now, uh, Nils and I tried it years and years ago, uh, years and years ago, and you know, we just never had much luck with it. We always maybe we overfroze it. I don't know, but we never, we never really, we never really were too uh, jazzed about it. But you know, Chris is enough of an advocate of it that I think it bears me trying it again at some point. The, the idea is to freeze it just long enough uh, to uh, get it to relax after it thaws, but not enough to alter the texture by freezing. You also want to make sure that you put them cup side down when they're thawing, so you don't lose any of the awesome precious juices uh, when you cry a shuck but shucking oysters is a huge problem so anything that makes it uh, work out better is probably a, a, a good thing to do should i share the nick wong story even though i'm probably not supposed to dave chang doesn't listen okay right so dave chang <clears throat> dave chang is a huge uh huge on on oyster shucking in fact we saw him not that long ago in an oyster shucking contest at Somme where like all of the momo cooks were racing each other to see who could shuck oysters fastest and so Dave Chang hates – there's two things there's, – there's, there's three things he hates about oyster shucking. One, if you're slow and puny, he hates that, right? He hates if you pop a belly. That's uh, akin to – to him, you might as well just punch him in the face as pop an oyster belly. Like he – like that, that would make him punch you in the face. So we're going back to last week's like what would cause a, f- a food stuff that would cause your friend to punch you in the face if you shucked an oyster in front of Dave Chang and popped the belly. And the other one is if you served a customer an oyster with bits of broken shell in it. That would also – like that's like you know infinite tirades from Dave Chang. So there was an extern years ago uh, that Nick Wong saw do this. It actually – he was so frightened that he saw this. He, Nick stopped him, so it didn't go out to the customer as far as I know. So don't, I don't want anyone to think that it went out to the customer. Saw the dude rinse an oyster under the water to make sure there was no shell in it. Can you imagine that? Oh, 
man. Even I might lose my cool on that. I mean, it takes a lot for me to lose my my cool at anyone other than Nastasha. Like people don't think I get worked up, but like honestly, like to actually lose my cool at someone I don't know, that takes a lot, right? Yeah. You ever see me lose my cool on someone I don't know? I don't think so. No, right? No. Anyway, cryo shucking. Uh, the other question uh, Alvin had was. Uh, he's having problems with his Rotovap. Rotovap is a rotary evaporator. It's used for low temperature uh, – well, it's, it's, it's a distillation rig that you use in laboratories, and it's got a couple of benefits. One, it does things at low temperature because it's under a vacuum, and when you put things under a vacuum, you can boil at lower temperatures, which means that you don't have any heat damage to, to very fragile flavors like herbs. The other thing is uh, – the other two things is, is it's very gentle – uh, it's very gentle, not just from a heat standpoint, but just gentle in terms of it doesn't have any a lot of bumping and boiling, so it's it's nice that way. And uh, <clears throat> two, three, it happens under a vacuum, and since it's under a vacuum, there's no oxidative effects when you're doing it. So it's it's very good for a number of things like that. Uh, but if you're going to do legal evaporation, even even illegal evaporation, I advocate using a cold finger because you want the maximum difference between your condenser and your boiler to get the maximum recovery of flavor volatiles from things like herbs and whatnot. Because remember, we're not doing primary distillation with a rotary evaporator. We're not trying to get rid of impurities like you would with uh, a column still. So so we're trying to get maximum capture of our stuff back in a rotary evaporator, typically. So we want really cold things. So I use liquid nitrogen uh, but uh, because I have a lot of it uh, in, in a thing called a cold finger condenser. But Alvin's using uh, – he says he's using dry ice and acetone, and he says that uh, the condenser is getting saturated. First of all, I do not recommend using dry ice acetone in food applications because uh, I don't want acetone anywhere near uh, the stuff I'm working with. And also, you're going to get high like a kite if you have a whole boatload of acetone sitting around and it warms up and starts volatilizing. I, mean, I, just wouldn't, I, don't, I don't really like using acetone in the kitchen, so I wouldn't do that. I would use uh, dry ice alcohol. You can use denatured alcohol as long as you're sure it doesn't get anywhere near your food. Or you could pick up some like Everclear 195 or something like that, and that stuff's fine. I would use that instead of uh, acetone. The other thing is, is that uh, the dry. I mean, dry ice. That's this is a classic lab way to do it. Dry ice and alcohol. But for some reason, Anastasia backed me up on this. Whenever we do uh, events where we try the dry ice in the condenser, it never seems to be as smooth or work as nicely as when we do the liquid nitrogen in the condenser. Right. For for some reason, I don't. I, I'm not sure why, but we always get a lot more boiling, and it's just it's always a lot messier, and things seem to get stuck more. And for some reason, we dry ice is extremely powerful. And uh, I tend also to – for some reason, when we do the dry ice alcohol, it tends to gunk up uh, my vacuum lines more because when you're getting – when you oversaturate in something that's cold like that, and you start getting uh, vapor, moisture vapor or, or distillate vapor in your vacuum line or near the point where the vacuum line attaches to the condenser. It can clog up. Once it clogs up, your thing you gets uh, saturated out. You can't get a vacuum level in there anymore, and the only way to fix it is to is to quickly put a blast of air through your vacuum line to clear it out by using the differential and pressure. But when you do that, then uh, you know you, you have all sorts of problems. So once that happens, it's very hard to get your distillation really right back on track. And uh, <clears throat> so I find that typically – one way to stop that from happening is to always start your distillation before you chill your uh, before you chill your thing down. Get the get your get a, a little bit of a vacuum so there's not a great uh, you know heat conductor. Get a little bit of a vacuum going in your condenser before you add the dry ice and the alcohol. Don't put dry ice and alcohol in the condenser and then start your distillation run. Uh, but it's very difficult, and I really think that liquid nitrogen, even though it's not as powerful as dry ice, uh, and so therefore it would cost more in the long and and you have to keep refilling it. I just find that it's a lot 
lot easier for me to for, for me to work with. I've, we, we haven't had as good a luck with dry eyes. Anyway, I hope that helps. Uh, should we go to our first commercial break? Sure. We're coming back from our first commercial break in a moment. Cooking issues. Brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I like that. I like that in the back of that. It's very. I don't know that it's Whole Foods sounding, but it's like you know, right? What do you yeah, think? I don't know if that's exactly Whole Foods, but uh, yeah, it definitely threw me for a loop. Yeah. That's that. Is that, uh, is that is that Jack's work? No, that's not Jack. That's uh, actually uh, Rachel Wharton's boyfriend is in this band, and he does the, the theme song for her for her show too. So yeah. Nice, nice. Cool, right? All right. Well, welcome back to Cooking Issues. Call your questions live to 718 That's 718-497-2128. Tom wrote in and said, hi, Dave and all. So it's not Nastasha. Now you're the all, too. She's like, well, I don't care. I don't care. I'm reading my tweets. Actually, you know what? She's not because Nastasha hates all sorts of social media. She detests it. She detests social things in general, actually, but especially media related to being social, right? It's true. Yeah. She also likes ordering shoes online, but hates it when other people do it. I hate ordering shoes. Oh, yeah? Yeah. yeah. Hold on. You're right. She's ordering jackets. <laughs> she's literally... She's sitting here. She always says that she's doing work. She's sitting Wait, here... No, no. I never re- said or- I was doing she, work she's sitting, she's sitting here ordering... Is that what you're doing? Like, with, no, see, I here's the thing. Nastasha all day product. has her face in the computer. She's like, you don't know what I do. You don't know what I do. The first time I ever went and actually took a look at her computer, <laughs> she's ordering jackets. And not just any kind of jacket, like... Like early '90s beige barn jackets. No, it's some like J. German, Crew style. It's some German like store. So what I the hell does that have to do with anything we're doing right now on cooking issues? Nothing. Nothing at all. I'm listening to you though. Uh huh. What was my last question about? Oh! <laughs> you just Harold McGee'd me. Hey, um, Harold, do you like this? What? Okay, good. Well, Nastasha has this thing that she says I ask <laughs> yeah. questions and then don't wait for the answer. Well, we don't have all day. It is a 45 minute program. Poor Harold. Poor Harold. <laughs> Crazy. Nastasha's a crazy person. By the way, for those of you that don't know, Nastasha, crazy person. Tom writes in, uh, I've recently started making sourdough bread and some other fermented goods. My wife loves the new food, but can't stand the vinegar flies. I put up with them until recently when they started attacking food mid-prep. Traps do trap flies, especially the ones I baited with water and soap to break the surface tension, pear slices, and sprouted then roasted barley. But I don't want to cook for flies. That is a lot of work. Sprouted and roasted barley? First of all, I hate sprouts. Yeah, we did sprouts in that. We detest sprouts. Everyone out there, I know that a lot of you like sprouts. I don't like them. I don't even like sprouts that everyone likes. 
I've said this many times before. Please don't serve me a pea shoot. I know you like it. I know everyone else likes it. I do not like it. Anyway, uh, I mean, I like to sprout barley, you know, uh, to, not to sprout it, but to germinate it. I mean, that's like the basis of many of the foods, uh, I mean, foods, drinks that I like in the world are based on the notion of sprouting barley. But, uh, you, know, uh, you know, but don't, uh, I should say germinating it. Anyway, <clears throat> because, you know, when you're doing malt, you don't want the, uh, the acrospire to come all the way out of the, uh, out of the barley because then it's eaten up too much of the, too much of the carbo is used and you don't have enough left over to make your delicious, delicious beer or your delicious, delicious whiskey. So don't do that. Anyway, um... I don't want to cook for flies, and it seems like the trap attracts and then kills extra flies, leaving roughly the same amount to be a nuisance. When I put the ferments in the fridge, the flies abate rapidly, so there isn't some other problem in the background. What do you do? What can I do? What do professionals do? I can't imagine flies would be tolerated in a good restaurant or factory. Thanks, Tom. P.S. Uh, Dave, did you take any philosophy classes from Michael Della Roca at Yale? He is my dissertation director. If you did take his class, would you give him a shout on an air? A uh, shout out on air. Well, I'm happy to give him a shout out, but no, uh, I don't think he joined the uh, faculty at Yale before I graduated. I graduated in '93, and I looked him up on the internets, and uh, his dissertation was in I think '91. So I don't think he was on the faculty. Uh, at Yale when I was there, I actually I, mean, I haven't looked at their faculty recently to see whether any of the old guard from uh, back in those days was uh, is still you know there. I'm sure, some of a lot of them are still alive. I had a bunch of young young people teaching us, but um, I don't know if they're still there. But I'm going to give a shout out to anyone doing their uh, philosophy dissertation at Yale. Shout out! I love that man. Like you know, again, whatever. I mean, I looked them up. Uh, 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 you know, Professor uh, Della Roca is it does a field that uh, I didn't do so much in. It's kind of early modern philosophy stuff. I was more, I, I, I did two two very different sides of the coin. I spent most of my time worried about Plato and, and uh, Nietzsche. I ended up writing a whole boatload of my papers on Nietzsche. Nietzsche is designed for like an eighteen to twenty one year old angst ridden philosophy student at an Ivy League institution. Like the writing is just like. I need to go back and read it and see whether I still like it. It'll be interesting whether 41-year-old me has, gets the same kind of feelings from reading Nietzsche. Nietzsche from that, reading your essays? No, crap on my essays. What the hell did I know? I was 20. But I mean, I don't know, the actual work. Go back and read Nietzsche. Have you ever gone back, Nastasha, and read some of the old stuff mm-hmm. that you read in college to see whether it's still, mm-hmm. like, whether you have any feeling about it at all? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, 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 what I'm worried about is I go back and I read it and I just feel nothing. Wouldn't that be weird to have spent, like, all that time? And then go back and feel nothing. Of course, it served its purpose. Whatever. Here is the story. So vinegar flies are similar to what are are named uh, fruit flies or drain flies. They're all different variants of the uh, Drosophila, like Melangaster. You know, the famous Drosophila Melangaster, the ones that they uh, did all the genetics experiments on. Uh, fruit flies. They're the same thing, and I hate them. I detest them. I would wi- I'm sure that they serve a great ecological purpose, but I would wipe them off the face of the earth. I, 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 I absolutely detest them. And they're the bane of Barr's existence. It's because, uh, you know, so actually, just uh, apropos of nothing, but if, if you own a bar and you watch someone come in and do a health inspection of your bar, what they do is they go and they grab your bottles of booze. They swirl them and put a flashlight in the bottom of them, and they're looking for dead fruit flies on the inside of your uh, bottles. 
Now, the health inspector that we had didn't have the brains to realize that we're not going to have that problem because we don't have speed pores on our bottles. So there's no way for flies to get into our bottles. Also, we were saying we weren't sure if it's actually technically illegal to do an infusion of fruit flies. If you raised food-grade fruit flies, could you do a fruit fly infusion and have a bottle that was totally full of fruit flies, like 100% just fruit flies and grain alcohol as an infusion? Aside from the fact that infusions might be technically illegal, would there be a further, uh, a further Ill- illegality as a result of the fruit flies themselves? It, it's unclear to me. We're not going to do it. Please. I'm, half, well, I'm 100% kidding, but just wondering about whether it's the fruit flies themselves that are inherently some sort of the health hazard, right? right? I mean, the health hazard from a fruit fly is that it, it might land on something that's incredibly gross and then land on your stuff. I, wanna ma- I told you I want to make little t-shirts for flies that say my last landing pad was poop. You know what I mean? You want to make a t-shirt for flies. Yeah, or somehow like, you know, maybe a little video that where a fly you is can, saying, um, you know, because a fly is like, it. yeah, we could, right? Yeah. My last landing pad was poop. I mean, that's the problem with flies. Not fruit flies, but flies. Anyway, uh, so, so off, the, off the topic. I would look up the Ohio State University Extension fact sheet uh, entomology on vinegar, pomace, or small fruit flies, uh, Drosophila, multiple different species. That's the, the, you know, the genus is uh, Drosophila. <clears throat> okay, here's the issue. They live anywhere there is stuff they can feed on. So the obvious one that we think of is uh, fermenting uh, products, fermenting fruit. They're attracted um, to that kind of a thing. Liquids, also garbage. Also, mops that you have out that are uh, <clears throat> mops that are that are wet, dish rags that are wet, uh, sponges that are wet, uh, <clears throat> any garbage uh, that you know is, is lying around. Now, the life cycle of them is you know between seven and, and fourteen days, so it takes a while, and they, it takes a while for them to grow. So, most likely, you have a source somewhere uh, that is uh, sitting around for long enough for it for these flies to uh, grow. Now, do you want to know what the most likely culprit I think is for something like this? Is if you if you're not keeping a wet mop around and you're not keeping fruit out, right? <clears throat> and you're not having these kinds of problems. Drains. It's your drains that are the most likely place where these uh, where these things uh, are 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 coming from, or they're coming from outside. Most screen mesh, most window screen mesh is not big enough. I mean, sorry, is not small enough to stop these flies from coming in. So uh, all of the uh, you know the uh, the sites, you know, the technical sites on it, you need what's called a 16 mesh or finer, which is finer than most uh, screen mesh, to exclude uh, these flies from coming into your uh, kitchen. Also, they can enter through, uh, they, they are attracted to light at night. So if you leave a light on and you have a screen open, they're attracted into the kitchen, <clears throat> they'll then find a mop, a rag, uh, uh, or any place like this to, uh, to go. Now, the drains are a problem because you can get a biofilm, which is like a layer of slimy gunk that inhabits the inside of the drains all the way down into where the trap is in the drain. <clears throat> and normal washing, uh, even with hot water, isn't enough to kill and or wipe these things out because the contact time is not long enough. And so what you need to do if you want to see whether this is where they're coming from is uh, – <clears throat> and this is – you know, I read this on several of the technical sites – is you want to put – tape over a portion of the drain leaving enough like so air can get in and out and then overnight and then come in the next day and see whether or not there's any flies stuck to the underside of the tape which would be indicative that the flies are exiting from the drain pipe in order to lay their eggs and do and do their nasty nasty work so um 
So how to get it out of the drains? You can uh, you you can re- like every couple of months you can remove your drain uh, your your the actual cover on the drain. Take a scrub brush and bleach and scrub that stuff out. Then pour uh, a bio uh, you know an enzymatic bio cleaner that will that will eat away at the uh, coating that's on the inside of the drain pipe. And then flush multiple times with boiling water, or and then you know periodically pour boiling water down your drains to make sure that you're uh, getting rid of it. Um, <clears throat> so that's that's one way to do it. Also covering up, uh, you know, covering up any source where they might go in that's wet. Not keeping any of that stuff in your in your kitchen. Remember they're tra- attracted to light and to moisture. Uh, now here's another good one. You can use uh, insecticides like pyrethrins to kill these suckers, but you don't necessarily want to have those things uh, laying around. Something you might not uh, be aware of, but that uh, I, I like quite a bit is uh, a product called Gentrol. Now Gentrol is a, a, a something called an insect growth regulator. The actual active ingredient in Gentrol, and you can buy this at a lot of stores. You can buy it, I think, on the Amazon. Is a hydroprene and hydroprene, and you you can look it up. Um, just look up hydroprene. If you look up Gentrol, you'll get a bunch of like things trying to sell it to you. If you look up hydroprene, H Y D R O P R E N E, you'll get uh, websites that talk about the actual product itself. Uh, what it is is it is a hormone analog. So insects use uh, different hormones to try and you know try and uh, signal within their bodies that they need to move to the next level of uh, either growth, a different instar if they're in a, in a nymph phase, or, uh, or to lay eggs. And so all parts of their reproductive and growth cycles are regulated by hormones the same way we are. Fortunately for us, uh, mammals and insects have different hormones, and so we can use... Uh, a hormone, uh, and it's not the actual hormone that's in the insects, but it's an, it's analogous to it. It affects the same systems that the real hormones do, and we can essentially provide uh, birth control to insects. So you, and the, the cool thing about this hydroprene, this gentrol, is it's totally food safe, and, and it's not a human or a mammalian hormone at all. So you can spray it on surfaces that are typically difficult to totally eradicate all water from, porous wood surfaces, um, things like that, things that can tra- uh, trap and hold moisture and are great breeding places for these these wretched flies. You can spray Gentrol on them <clears throat> you know, uh, a couple of times. It lasts for a good long while in there, and it will provide continuous birth control for flies such that they will not be able to reproduce. Okay? So uh, – you know, we we use this, and, and by the way, it works on uh, almost all uh, insects. Uh, go to read if you want to read a, a scholarly paper on it. Go read hydroprene mode of action, current status in stored product pest management, insect, insect resistance, and future prospects by uh, S. M. Mohandas. That's available. It's in the magazine Crop Protection, two thousand and six, and it's available for free on the USDA.gov uh, website. Uh, and it goes through what it does uh, and all of the uh, studies of it. Um, uh, and it's it's good stuff. It's gentrol. It also wipes out cockroaches and it also wipes out moths. So you know, uh, and I think it also might work on flower beetles and things like that. So if you're having some sort of hard to crack infestation that's probably due to some thing somewhere in your kitchen you can't find that these suckers are attracted to uh spray this on it they'll go back to where they came from wherever they lay eggs and those eggs will not be fertile so it's uh it's good stuff hope that the way things good good job do you like the gentle right did you ever use it did you take some you don't do you have any problems at your house really even though you live in hell's kitchen 
Hell's Kitchen's like, you know, it's like the older of a building you live in or the more people in it, the harder it is to kind of eradicate these things. We once had a, a you know, I've, I've had at work wonders on cockroaches at Gentrol. I mean, I like it and... You know, it's nice to find something because I have two kids in my house, so I don't want to spray a lot of poisonous stuff around, you know. Uh, I mean, I used to have no pets. Now we have the two hamsters. Did I ever say on air that the one hamster escaped? My kids had the hamster. The hamster escaped, but another hamster and the other hamster showed up like a week and a half later, like the prodigal hamster. He was totally emaciated and messed up and like, you know, like, like you know, on a forced march kind of a situation. My wife saw him and was like, ah, because she thought it was some sort of crazy road. She's like, oh, my God, Rhino, you've come back. And it gets Rhino. And, and like we had two cages, a mini storage cage, right, for the, and the big one. And the new hamster, Sulu had the, ran, the run of, of both hamster cages, right? And then all of a sudden, Rhino comes back, and Sulu gets shoved in the small cage, and Rhino gets his big cage back because the hamsters can't live together because they might, you know, rip each other to shreds. And we were all like, holy crap. And we're like, wow, it's just like the prodigal son from the Bible. He can leave. He can do what he wants. Yeah. If he comes back, you guys are like, hey, Dad, how's, how's come you're so much nicer to the one that, that did all this other crap? And he's like, I always had you as a son. <laughs> But this son I had lost, and now I have him again. What <laughs> kind of message is that? Crazy. You're look, following it. Look, here, here's the thing. I, well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Uh, now, look. It, it, for those of you that, that aren't parents or have never been or are young or whatever, okay, when you read the prodigal son in, you know, section of the Bible, you're like, that is some load of bull. What the hell is that? You know what I mean? You're like, this is horse crap. But then once you become a parent, you understand it. Really? Why? Because it's true. You think you've lost something, and nothing is worse than the loss. And then when it comes back, it's like, oh! You know what I mean? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It doesn't mean you give him the bigger cake. Go back. kill the fatted carrot! The prodigal hamster is back! <laughs> hey, Dave, I think you have a caller. Oh, yeah. Caller, you're on the air! Hi, she's crew. It's Brian and Go. Oh, hey, Brian. How you doing? Good. Okay, my question is, I'm looking for your tips to make the best pancakes and waffles. Ooh. What are your, pri- what are your criteria for, for a good pancake and waffle? Because the answer depends. Okay, so not soggy. Uh, and it's got a little, little crunch on the outside. It's got some, um, some fluffiness to it. Uh, and I'm also interested in, in, in maybe going the savory route also. So both, both for breakfast and, uh, and, um, and for, for dinner. So for dinner, most people on their pancake style things will. Like Korean with, yeah, with kimchi or something like that. Right. I mean, they'll, like, so most people want a different texture on a dinner pancake than they want. They want usually more crepe-like on on a dinner-style thing. And the, the secret to crepe-like things is to let the batter rest a long time, not only because of hydration issues, but uh, to make sure all the air is out because it's very hard to get a good spread on a crepe if there's any air left over in the batter. Okay. But crepe-like I, means thin. Thin, right. <clears throat> now, but if you want to do... Standard pancakes and waffles. If you do, if you research old recipes on pancakes and waffles, you'll find that the major difference between them, in fact, in some ways, the only difference you need to pay attention to between them is that a waffle recipe is going to contain a significant amount of oil or oil-like thing like butter, okay? And the reason is, is you need something to, uh, you need something to reduce the uh, sticking, 
to the sides of the of the waffle iron. So if you try to do a lower fat version of a waffle, you'll you'll find that uh, it just sticks like a like like nobody's business. Modern day waffle irons have a Teflon coating on the inside of them and are much better at releasing, and so don't require as much fat in them as the old school recipes. And so you'll see a lot of more modern recipes really tone the fat level down because the fat level can be quite high. We're talking. Uh, you know, like over well over half of a cup of uh, half a cup, well, like two sticks of butter worth. Yeah, well over a f- cup, right? What is it? Anyway, in uh, in like a four and a half cup flour recipe. So you're um, a significant amount of. I find though that I like it better with that high amount of uh, fat in it. Now I used to try various different things in my pancakes and waffles. So I use the same. Long story short, I use the same recipe because I'd rather have the more fat in my pancake recipe than the less fat in the waffle. It makes it easier to remember. So I use the same batter for both pancakes and for waffles. So uh, the recipe – also what I do is I, I hydrate a certain portion of the flour in uh, my liquids before I, before I start working. I use buttermilk. Because I like the results I get. So the recipe that I actually use at home, it's not really measured, so I'll have to give it to you, is I use a, a quart of uh, buttermilk, right? The regular cultured like buttermilk, which isn't actually buttermilk, but that's what everyone calls right. buttermilk. I use a quart of that, five uh, whole uh, – uh, I use extra large eggs. I don't know why, but I always have five extra large eggs. Um, I then add uh, a portion of the flour. I usually add like a cup and a half. My wife – and I actually like the taste of it. So I, the, uh, if I'm going to use a non-traditional flour at this point, I add it then. And I use, a lot of times use a mixture of oats and or buckwheat flour and or cornmeal and or you know some little bit. But don't, you can't use too much wheat germ. Some of that – some or, or whole wheat, all different kinds or uh, – or uh, shapati flour at this point. I, I add it now, right, at, at this early stage, along with uh, vanilla, which I usually use vanilla at that point, and if I'm going to use it, rum, and also sugar to taste to make it uh, a little bit sweeter. And that's what I would omit for a savory recipe, okay? Uh, blend that thing together and allow the hydration to start. There's so much uh, – there's so much um, – <clears throat> um, there's so much moisture in that that you're not going to develop any gluten. Don't worry about – and I hit it with a stick blender to get it really well blended at that point. You don't need to worry about gluten development at this point. I melt uh, – I also salt. Sorry. I add some salt to it. I then melt – What about uh, the chemical leaveners? Uh, yeah, I add that later. So then I add – so I let that hydrate for a little while. Then I melt uh, two sticks of butter, which is I guess a cup, or a mixture of oil depending on what you're doing if you don't want the butter. Uh, I, I mix, I blitz that in. Then I add a portion of the remaining flour, and then it sounds like a lot, but four and a half teaspoons of baking uh, powder. And uh, I used to only use four, uh, and I used to also make a thinner recipe with the flour I added. But I decided I like my pancakes thicker, and so I add a slightly more baking uh, powder. I take it up to four and a half, and I add a little more flour to make it stiffer. If you want it thinner and you want the pancakes a little thinner and not quite as fluffed out, more less cakey, then take it down to four teaspoons and um, don't uh, add as much flour at the end. So four and a half teaspoons baking powder and two teaspoons soda to counteract the acidity from the buttermilk and to do extra leavening. Then I stir in enough uh, flour to get the consistency, the texture I want, and I cook it. I cook them on a large uh, crepe maker, actually, because I have a crepe maker from France. Uh, And uh, what I usually do is I'll hit it with a little bit of a high initial heat to start the crust going because it's also there's a big wallop of, uh, of a heat load on your pan because there's all that moisture sticking to it. 
and then I'll reduce the heat down, wait for the bubbles when they break. I can see that I've cooked enough through my pancake for a good flip time, flip and, and cook out. That's how I – that's – my standard pancake, and I use the same recipe for waffles. I tend not to try any of the more comp- – I've done them many times, but I don't do a lot of the more complicated stuff like separately whip the egg whites and uh, and then fold them in because I find that it reduces the structure on the inside of the waffle or pancake to the extent that it's not what I'm looking for anymore. Does that make sense? That makes sense. What about things or what is what you know if i want to do banana nut or add add some fruit fruit or something in there and then all and then also what about yeasted what what if i want to go with 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 yeasted and and um put put some yeast and do the overnight thing right there's two kinds of yeasted there's people that add yeast just for flavor but then are doing standard rises on it and uh you know that you can do whenever you want the overnight ones they they taste great they're they're um they tend uh they have a very unique flavor. I actually really like them, but um, not everyone's a fan of that kind of a yeasted flavor. But I think they're great. I also used to, uh, I used to use, uh, you know, so <clears throat> sourdough that's not right for bread baking. I.e., it's too far gone. It's very sour. But I used to keep that stuff around, not, and then I would I would try to reconstitute it into a real bread starter to do bread. But I would use that starter a, as a as just an addition to sourdough uh, pancakes, where then it's functioning a lot more like the buttermilk. That's also delicious. But remember, like those kind of pre ferments are going to change the structure of the flour a little bit, so the the pancakes won't have quite the same texture as a non fermented pancake will. Not better, not worse, different. You know what I mean? So they'll have a little bit of that glossier inner crumb structure that you're going to get from a sourdough than you would from a normal normal kind of a, a pancake thing. As regard fruits... Is it because there's more gluten development? Uh, or I think because it breaks. I think because it breaks things down. The, the acidity is uh, is uh, messing with the with the structure. I think the same way that it's actually weakening it. Uh, but uh, you know, I would think I haven't done the research on it. I mean, it's, uh, that's just off off the top of my head. On fruits, though. Uh, I tend not to mix fruits into the batter unless they are completely dry. I don't want them to bleed out, and also it's harder to dose them in. So I always add them to the uh, – I put the pancake down. I'll then add the fruit in the correct correct dosage and pattern to the pancake. And then because I'm extremely anal, I will take a spoon and paint a thin layer of batter over, the, over each piece of fruit before I flip it. That's how I do it. Uh, I used to do this also – uh, with uh, I used to use frozen blueberries all the time in my uh, in waffles. Uh, let me tell you this: it works great, except for expect to buy a new waffle iron every couple of months because the blueberry burns onto the surface of the Teflon, and it is they are never the same again. And so eventually, your your waffle iron is going to start sticking. And you could sit there with uh, with like a, a wooden chopstick and try to scrape that stuff off as much as you want to, but those waffle irons never come back to the same condition after you've stopped. You know, after you've started putting fruit into them. Now, maybe worth it to you. And I thought it was worth it for a while, but you know, the last time I, I had my waffles start sticking uncontrollably, I was like, I'm just not doing this anymore. I haven't even replaced my waffle iron. My sons are like, Dad, can you buy a waffle iron again? I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll get around to it, to buying a good waffle iron. My last one was one of the uh, flip guys, the ones that emulated the professional style, the flip ones. The flip ones are actually designed to have a much uh, more watery dough, and they're designed to, to cook a lot faster and to have a lot more of an empty inside. That's why they flip, right? You flip it so that you can get the equal uh, stru- structure on each side. But even so, I used a standard recipe in them, and they, they worked great. I love the, the flip guys because they're so much faster. 
I mean, no one's designed the perfect waffle iron yet. What you really want is a waffle iron that, that you know, plugs into a 220 source and can make four real-sized waffles at once because unless you're feeding only yourself, let's face it, who cooks waffles for themselves? It's a huge pain in the butt to crank out enough waffles for everyone and then have everyone eat at the same time. Don't you agree on this? Agreed. Yeah. There's always going to be some that are going to be more crisp than others. Yeah, yeah, I know. I hate that. May, you know, but the problem is people don't have the power uh, you know, in their house to typically do it. I once invested in a bunch of old cast iron waffle irons, the ones that make the really thin, weird little waffles. That's what I have. Yeah, but it, they always stuck a little bit. They were never as release-friendly as the other ones, but they did allow me because I have six burners. I could crank out a whole bunch of them. Do you like the little cast iron guys? Uh, it's, I, I like it. It's, it's pretty well – this one's pretty well greased. Right. Um, yeah, I, I find that it has it, it, it trans, once it heats up and it's cranking, it's 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 going pretty well. I like it. Yeah, nice. Well, maybe I'll give it a, a a try again. It's certainly the only way to get out a bunch of waffles at once is to fire up a bunch of burners with a bunch of cast iron. Well, let's let me ask you more about the savory one because I got I had a recipe for a kimchi pancake that um it, it the it was um, half potato starch, half all-purpose flour. Right, um, and, and it seemed to crisp up pretty pretty nicely, but it's a very different kind of deal because it's got a lot of a lot of kimchi in there and, and, a, and a fair amount of veg. Right. So, um, uh, you know, do you do you have any thoughts on the, on uh, on that for the savory application? Well, what what did you not like about the texture of it? No, I I actually like it. I don't know if if uh, you know if I can take. Um, if I can do that, that uh, that one to one with the the potato starch and, and the um, and the all purpose flour, and do use it for other kinds of um, other kinds of things. I mean, probably it's, it's interesting. I've never done that high of a ratio. I used to all of my cookies. Uh, I used to bake with a like a uh, uh, a five to one AP to cornstarch base to soften them. You know, I mean, I mean, probably they're adding the cornstarch there to soften the pancake up a little bit, so that the actual structure of it's not too glutinous, it's not too tough, uh, which would, I guess, help if you were going to do a lot of um, whipping or beating. But again, I'm also using a lot of low gluten stuff in my current pancakes, so I never have a t- problem with them getting tough. I'm using a lot of things like oats and, and stuff like that at fairly high usages. So you could, pro- um, you know, uh, usage rates that is. So you could uh, on a flour basis. So I'm sure you could. Uh, I'm sure you could use it for whatever you want. If you like the texture of that, I, like I say, I, I've done that much of, of non-glutinous flours, but I've never used that much corn starch. It should hydrate relatively quickly. You know, yeah, but, it, it is, this one's potato starch, actually. Oh, potato. Um, yeah. and, and, but the texture is closer to like a, like a, a latke, like a potato pancake, huh. um, than, than a more than a kind of a sweet pancake, like a breakfast pancake. Right. Potato starch is weird. I would expect it to be dense and very moist. Uh, well, the, the inside is, is, is that way, but the outside crisps up very nicely. Yeah. It's interesting. I'll have to do some, uh, do, where, what was the source of the recipe? There was, uh, it's from the New York Times website. Actually, it's, uh, it, it based on a rest, some restaurant in, in, in Manhattan, I think. Huh. Yeah, well, I'll try, I'll oh, try. Do you want me to send you the link? Yeah, yeah, send us the link on I'll the, send on it the and she can pass it on. Cool, thanks a lot. Okay, thanks. Right. Bye. Right. Uh, Derek writes in with a question. 
Uh, hi, I've listened to many shows over the last couple of years and I've heard a great deal of advice on cooking low temperature, especially beef and chicken. I don't recall much advice for lamb, though. So as I have a two-pound lamb shoulder roast in my possession, I'd like to ask for some pointers. My plan is to cook it at 60 degrees, a.k.a. 140 Fahrenheit, which, by the way, people, I've said this a million times, remember that one. Always, that, like, if you remember no other Celsius to Fahrenheit conversion, remember 60 to 140. In my circulator, chill, re-therm, and finish in a 450-degree or 500-degree oven for service. I like my lamb medium. It's 61. I like my lamb medium. It's 60 degrees Celsius and appropriate temperature. Uh, it's what I'm... Uh, it's what I aim for when I'm oven baking or oven roasting, but I wonder if you have a different recommendation for long cooking in a circulator. Uh, two, I'm planning on cooking it for six to eight hours, and I want to balance between breaking down connective tissue and not making it too muttony. Is this long enough? Next, at what temperature should I re-therm it to get it warm without overcooking it during the final oven browning? Uh, 130, for instance. Is that a good, uh, is that a good thing? Uh, in other words, the internal temperature to re-therm it to. Um, thanks, Derek. Okay. First of all, to me, 60, like I looked up uh, online, to me, 60 seems a little bit high. Uh, look at some, I mean, a little bit high for cooking for that long. The longer you cook it, the kind of lower you can get the temperature down. And I mean, if, unless it's strictly speaking a color issue, you're going to go up. 60 is not too high. I would try to, I mean, I would do it at 57 or 58, but 60 is probably going to be fine. You try it. It's not going to, it's not, it's not going to be horrible. If you really want it more on the, on the well, not well, but on the medium side, 60 might be a good number. I don't think that, um, I don't think that six to eight hours is going to be enough. You're probably going to want to go longer, like 12 to 24, uh, at 60. But, uh, you know, your problem is, is that you, it depends on how tender you want it. Right, so the longer lamb usually doesn't need to take as much cooking as uh, other things because lamb, it's lamb, so it's it's younger, so the connective tissue is easier to break down than it is in uh, in an older animal. Um, so it typically doesn't take as long a time as you would with uh, with an older animal, but. Um, it's still probably going to take longer than six to eight hours. You'll get some tenderizing effect at 60 for six to eight hours, definitely, but it's going to be the difference of taking something – let's go back to steak land. It's going to be the difference of taking something from skirt steak texture to rib steak texture, okay? Not the difference of taking something from uh, you know an undone braise to a done braise. So – you know, it might be tender enough for you, but the comp, like, if it's going to be, if you're going to do something at 60, so you're going to do it at that high a temperature, I think you needed to get it really, really tender in order for, like, that level of doneness to be pleasant, in which case you're going to need to go longer, like, like, eight, like, 12 to 24. I would probably cook it long, as high as 24. I think that the muttony flavor that's going to come out is going to come out by eight hours anyway, if you're having a piece that's going to get one of those gamey muttony flavors. So I don't think that the extra 12 hours is going to accentuate that cooking that much. Anyway, usually when a meat protein is going to start throwing off a gamey, livery, muttony uh, taste, it's happening in the first four, five, six hours. So by the time you get to eight or nine, I think that flavor is already developed, not that it won't uh, intensify uh, over time. Now, if you're going to chill this guy all the way down, I think that, uh, you know, I still think that it's only two pounds, so I would do it in a very high temp oven to brown up the outside, and don't worry about how warm it's going to get in the middle. It, it, you could throw it into, uh, you could retherm it. One thirty. What's that in, in Fahrenheit? Could someone do that? I mean, in Celsius. Could someone do the conversions like Celsius to Fahrenheit for me? One thirty. Yeah. 
What is that? Nastasha's looking it up. 54? Yeah, 54 for a 60. I mean, I would do it even lower. I would re-therm it at like 52. I would bring it up uh, at like uh, 52 uh, up to temperature for like half hour, maybe, something like this. It depends on how thick you are. Go to sous vide dash or whatnot and find out how long it's going to take to get up to those temperatures, up to like 50 in that range, and then sear it off uh, from there or even slightly before it gets up to that when the center is like in the 40s or the center's in like the, you know, like in the mid 40s. You'll get a good roast on the outside and you're not going to overcook it. Um, that's, what I would, that's what I would recommend. What do you think? Or you can just pull it. You can just drop the temperature of the circulator for the last hour if you don't want to chill it down. Drop the temperature of the circulator for the last hour. Throw ice cubes. Drop the temperature of the circulator to fifty. Pull it directly from the circulator and throw it into the and throw it into a, a hot oven, and you should be all right. Okay. Uh, one last uh, question from Rob Trepaz. I think it's one last. I think I only have one last. Uh, Hello, when I cook low temperature or sous vide at home, I typically serve all that I make or chilled sealed bags to re-therm them for a separate meal. Typically, I follow the 72-hour rule for uh, 5 degrees Celsius, 41 degrees Fahrenheit storage as per the FDA time and temp standards for sous vide in my domestic refrigerator or freeze for longer storage. If I follow the storage, uh, the FDA storage guidelines, then sear or re-therm the food, can I safely hold the leftovers for the next uh, day or two under refrigeration? Uh, do the FDA sous vide standards, uh, pages 1 through 186 in Modernist Cuisine, only or no, volume 1, page 186, I guess, from Modernist Cuisine, only pertain, uh, pertain to the time spent in the anaerobic environment, i.e. until the bag is opened. Do these restrictions go away if I use Ziplocs instead of vacuum bags? I have some duck confit sous vide at 180 for eight hours, chilled and stored in the freezer for a month, and I would like to use it to make riettes. What kind of storage and serving window would be appropriate? <clears throat> Thanks again for all your help. Rob Trepas. Well, uh, that is a that that is a really uh, really good question. So it, it I if you're if you're storing it for a month, right? You're going to want to have your storage as per the storage things all the way down at 38 Fahrenheit. However, with a uh, confit, you're going to cook it, right? So what they're worried about on that probably is a botulism uh, problem. Uh, and you know, if you're going to reheat it enough. Um, I think you're going to be all right. You're going to cook it. You're going to recook it and make riettes with it. What kind of storage and serving window would be appropriate? If you pull something out of a bag and you consider safe, it should be all right to, to redo it normally. There's two issues going on, and you rightly point them out here. One is you're worried about uh, you know anaerobic things uh, going wrong in your bag, i.e. botulism or, mic- or facultative bacteria, microaerobic stuff like listeria going on. You're going to wipe out the listeria, so you're worried about things that are spore-forming Like if you do a good job cooking, so if you're actually cooking it properly. Uh, so you're worried more about things like uh, botulism, and um, you're still – not, I, you know what, Rob? Like for some reason, my brain is totally fried. I'm trying to parse through everything that you're that you're saying. And I, when, when it comes to safety, I want to make a hundred percent reliable judgment as to what I'm doing. So I'm going to go ahead, reread your question because I, when I read it, I thought I could answer. Because usually I can answer most safety things off the top of my head, but I want to make sure I give you exactly the right uh, advice on the order of what you're doing things and where they're going to go. So I'm going to hold off on finishing your question for uh, for next time. 
And on my way out, we have a question from Mike Chashevsky. says, oh, by the way, he says, P.S., because I know they're going to cut us off before I'm done. He says, you guys need to have a, a TV show. From your, from your lips to uh, the, I don't know, some producer's ears. The problem is very few people want to actually do a show the way that, uh, you know, that we would want to do a show, which is I like to just go, I just, just like to go crazy on particular subjects for a long period of time. And most people, they don't, they don't like that so much. Right? Right. Right. And it turns out, turns out. They don't like it so much. Uh, anyway, my question concerns dairy products and heat. I sometimes add dairy to hot dishes. For instance, I might finish a curry with a bit of yogurt or add sour cream to a paprikash, which I haven't had one in a long time. They're delicious. Anyway, uh, sometimes the dairy curls and looks gross. It does look gross. You're correct. I think it has something to do with the whey proteins denaturing and binding to the K pro- uh, casein pr- uh, proteins. Uh, well, that I'm not sure about that. But, but anyway, could you explain exactly what is going on and any possible solutions? One trick I found which sometimes works is tempering the dairy with a bit of the hot liquid and then incorporating it back into the main pot. Thanks, Mike. Okay. Um, what's happening is is that the, the you know you, in something like a sour cream, the stuff is partially uh, coagulated and broken together, but it's still okay. You stir it in, it's acidified, so it's right at the place where it's going to break and curdle and look awesome. It's very, very touchy. And this is why all the recipes recommend to you that you uh, you know don't heat a sauce after you add the sour cream to it. You're very gentle when you heat it. And the reason they're asking you to temper the stuff in is because if you put the uh, sour cream directly into the hot uh, uh, sauce, especially if it contains acidic things like tomatoes that are adding to the acidity of it, right, uh, it will tend to break right away. Whereas if you are if you're stirring the, the the dairy product and adding hot liquid into it, it's much more gradual change, and so you're not going to cause uh, kind of the instant break where where it's going to happen. The um, the, the recommendation – so that's why that recommendation is there, right? Uh, the, the breaking is enhanced by heating, which is why the recommendation is also there to not heat up those things. The other one that works is to add a stabilizer. So if you're adding a stabilizer and a lot of uh, – you know, people put either starches or flour in, uh, and the flour uh, prevents the uh, prevents the the the, the agglomeration of the uh, of the casein, and so it prevents that curdling. And that you know that's doing that. On the other hand, that's going to muddy the flavor somewhat of it by, by masking it with the with the thing. My uh, my uh, the person who's now what's Piper's what's Piper's job with us? Uh, product engineer, I think it is. Yeah, he uses uh, pectins actually, a particular kind of pectin. I'll try and get it for the next show to do acidified dairy products that don't curdle. And he made a really acidified dairy product for us uh, yesterday. It was kind of it was kind of. What do you think about that? I wasn't there. Oh, you didn't taste it. Uh, anyway, so so you you can do that uh, again. My brain totally bad. I didn't didn't read precisely what you had said. I don't think it is the whey proteins binding to the casein uh, proteins. Although I will research it for. Uh, for the next time, as well as answer a question about pectinex that came in that I didn't get a chance to answer until next week. Cooking issues. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.